Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Well, today's show is uh, potpourri. We'll have some discussions of some interesting new findings about fertility and gynecological issues. We'll have some stories about the microbiome because, of course, it's probably my favorite topic. It's been the revolution in science in my, uh, well, my career as a doctor, and it's still gradually gaining footholds, although I am starting to hear some doctors at Grand Rounds at the hospital kind of say, yeah, microbiome might be, bit, might be a big thing. Yes, indeed. Well, also, we have a story about an old drug showing up as being extremely beneficial in chronic heart disease. Some very interesting stuff, which I hope we'll get to, about uh, psychology, my first love. So I wanted to start with uh, this. I got this as part of a uh, report from Stanford University. So I want to give them a uh, full points for this because at the top of the description, it gives some data. I think it's uh, fairly good to talk about this. For those over 60 years of age, some imaging findings on MRI are common even in normal, pain-free volunteers. Among people over the age of 60 who do not have back pain, an MRI will find that about 9 out of 10 have disc degeneration, about 9 out of 10 have disc signal loss or desiccation, about 8 out of 10 have disc height loss, and about 8 out of 10 will have a disc bulge. Four out of ten people, remember these are pain-free people, will have a disc protrusion. Four out of ten will have an annular fissure. Four in ten will have facet degeneration. And three out of ten will have spondylolisthesis. So, all I want to say is that you know what the biggest cause of MRIs are? Well, back pain. And we get into this bad psychological loop because the doctor shows you your report. It says, well, we have disc degeneration at level L2 through L4, and we have disc height loss, gives you the millimeters, and it makes a great sales pitch for surgery. But it's not true. This is like saying that every freckle is a melanoma, right? But that's what we do if we're not careful when we overread what our technology hands us. So let's talk about this latest study came out from a paper at the UCSF is the one who was announcing it. A national study enrolled a highly diverse group of pregnant women over a period of 12 years, found an alarming rising exposure to chemicals from plastics and pesticides. Uh, this is over 12 years. So we're talking 2010 to 20, uh, or maybe 2008 to 2020. You know, there's usually a couple of years lag time before the uh, study gets reported. So if it went up after we figured out about uh, phthalates and bisphenol A, we really need to step back and look at what are we doing. So many of the chemicals that the uh, women had been exposed to were replacement chemicals, new forms of chemicals that have been banned or phased out. Uh, they may be just as harmful as the ones they replaced. We're talking about all of those BPA-free plastic labels that you can see when you walk down, well, among other things, the um, personal care product aisle at any supermarket or drugstore is full of no BPA, but it's also full of plastic containers. And unfortunately, plastic leaches. And if it can leach from the plastic into whatever whatever's in the product, and we're not, not even talking about the products themselves, many of whom have these, these compounds in them. If it can get out of the plastic 
in the bottle. It can get into your skin. And if it's already in the liquid, it can get into your skin. These compounds are lipid soluble. They penetrate. Think it through. Women are putting on their faces face creams that are designed to penetrate, right, and reduce wrinkles and all of these other you know, wonderful promises they make. Well, they're supposed to penetrate, right? So how can you imagine that the sunscreen that you put on on top of that isn't also penetrating? Of course it is. And we can find it in your lymph nodes. The researchers were looking at urine. They measured 103 chemicals, mostly pesticides, plastics, and as I said, replacement chemicals for BPA and phthalates. And they had a new method, so they could do it with just one uh, urine sample. 80% of the chemicals were found in at least one woman in the study. More than a third of the chemicals were found in the majority of the participants. And this is, I want to remind you, pregnant women. And some of these chemicals were found in higher amounts than earlier studies, so they've gone up in the interval. The number and scope of chemicals that pregnant women have in their bodies are increasing, and this is occurring at a very vulnerable time of development for both the pregnant person and the fetus. Prenatal exposure to industrial chemicals could come from air, food, water, plastics, please don't microwave in plastic, or other industrial and consumer products. And I just saw a a four-part program called Not So Pretty. And I'm sorry, I don't remember what of the thousand streaming networks it was on, but I'm sure you can find it. And it's probably on YouTube by now. These are really excellent. There's one about hair products, one about nail products. Uh, The one about body products gave me shivers. And uh, I highly recommend that everyone watch this, but Although it's directed at women, these compounds are, males are also subject to to, uh, this. We all use these sorts of products and are exposed to them. This was 171 women. It went across the United States, 34% white, 40% Latino, 20% black. And one of the findings was uh, higher exposures across the board for non-white women, but Uh, and also those who were single or had been exposed to tobacco, presumably health awareness. But Latinas had especially high levels of parabens, which are used as preservatives in a lot of bath and body products, as well as phthalates and bisphenols. These products can influence fetal development. We have strong evidence, for example, that a type of plastic called phthalates actually reduces sexual development in males. It makes the sexual development of the male genitalia less male. And I want to point out that when you go out in the environment and you look at frogs and fish that are in waters that have high levels of this, because these animals can switch sex, and certain fish and certain amphibians can actually, if if all the males are killed off, the largest female will actually turn into a male through the magic of whatever biology is doing that. But what you start seeing is that you are shifting the offspring. You're shifting the populations that are swimming in this water. These babies are also swimming in water. Some of the increase in diabetes and childhood diabetes, particularly type 2 diabetes, may be influenced by this. We'll be talking in a second about insulin growth factor 1 receptors And I want you to understand that is implicated in diabetes as well as these hormonal diseases I'll be talking about. And that is also affected by these plastics, the xenoestrogens that these plastics actually are. So you hear about using soy. Well, soy is a xenoestrogen, genistin and um, diazenian. I've never known how to pronounce that are soy isoflavones that can get onto these sex hormone receptors and this IGF receptor. In the case of soy, it tends to gentle the effect on estrogen, which can be a good thing. But if you are taking estrogen restriction therapy because you have a breast cancer with ER receptor positive uh, molecules in it, well, you don't want to be taking soy. But on the other hand, if you're experiencing hot flashes and you don't have breast cancer, you might want to be taking soy. 
That's a good use of a xenoestrogen. But these chemicals, they've gotten into our water supply, they've gotten into the uh, soil, they've gotten into our food chain. And to the extent that we facilitate their entry into our bodies, we're asking for all sorts of unintended consequences, particularly in pregnant women. So my other story for this first segment relates to a common gene variant in that very receptor, the IGF or insulin-like growth factor receptor, and a variety of seemingly unrelated gynecological disorders. So this is something that we've known for a while, but this study goes into the genetics of it. So I'm going to start off with a little background. Women who uh, suffer from a number of gynecological conditions that are related, endometriosis and polycystic ovary syndrome are closely related. This also tends to be associated with breast tenderness, heavy periods. There are variations in our genetics that make women more likely to suffer from a cluster of these. And preeclampsia, which is a condition uh, where the woman develops elevated blood pressure and protein in their urine, and this can lead to eclampsia, which is a life-threatening condition for both the baby and the mom, where the woman has seizures. This is the most common reason for preterm birth in the United States, preeclampsia. And so we all know that preterm birth presents a lifelong challenge to the baby. So we'd like to avoid it. Uh, Women who have endometriosis or polycystic ovary syndrome also have an increased lifetime risk of cardiovascular disease later in their lives, probably also related to these hormonal factors affecting the lining of the blood vessels. There is a genetic mechanism that's been identified in the IGF-1R receptor If you have the T variant of this, you're less likely to experience this cardiovascular risk after having eclampsia. And so women with this genetic uh, variation are protected. So researchers looked carefully at this in endometriosis and in polycystic ovary disease, and they found that it's also protective in them. So women with the T allele variant, who, by the way, if they have this variant, they're more likely to get endometriosis or polycystic ovary disease, but they're protected later on against cardiovascular disease. So really what we have to do is bifurcate these two groups, but the T allele uh, confers protection against the risk And again, it emphasizes the importance of the IGF-1 receptor in pregnancy and also in any kind of rapid growth, possibly including rapid growth after the estrogens go away, that is to say postmenopausal, in the plaques in the arteries. So such a wonderful web-like interconnection of things. I I really adore it. We're going to jump into Janine from Los Angeles. Subject is frontal fibrosing alopecia, gut flora and food sensitivity. Greetings, Dr. Don. I have been living with frontal fibrosing alopecia for about six years. FFA is a fairly recently recognized and relatively unexplored condition. My doctor works hard trying to help me. While my current regimen of pharmaceuticals has slowed it down, it has not caused it to burn out, which is considered a successful treatment. I also have rosacea, and both conditions have a cyclic nature of flares and cooldowns. Because of this, my wonderful doctor has suggested that a food sensitivity or a leaky gut problem might be to blame. I'm getting the Immunofood 270 blood test as well as a stool test for gut flora. Can you explain to me how these things might connect to fibrosing frontal uh, alopecia, and which she adds is thought to be autoimmune related? My current regimen consists of hydroxychloroquine, dutasteride, and low-dose naltrexone. It's done a decent job, but not enough. Thank you in advance, Janice. 
Well, Janice, thank you for an excellent web-like question. And so I first of all want to comment that I did look at the ImmunoFood 270 blood test. It is an IgG test, which is what I use to look at food sensitivity. And the concept here is if we are interested in skin, the way that a food sensitivity works is that for some reason, and a leaky gut is the most common reason, a person starts making antibodies against foods that they eat or foods they're exposed to. This can also happen with antibodies against food because you are inhaling a pollen, which cross-reacts with those foods. So uh, you can look up pollen food cross-reactions in the uh, and, and see if that rings a bell once you get your results back. Because it's not always the food that's listed there. It's a sort of, it's a, a little bit of a loose response with an antibody to an antigen. So you can get what we call a cross-reaction. And that's how certain vaccines work. The old smallpox vaccine worked by a, giving you a smallpox-like drug, a smallpox-like uh, exposure, excuse me, and that that exposure was enough to make you make an antibody that would attack the smallpox. Rheumatic fever happens when the strep throat that you get teaches your immune system to make an antibody that then goes on to attack your heart valves. So this cross-reactivity is something we've known about for a very long time, but it's only recently, I think, that as we begin to understand the food sensitivities and how they can drive all sorts of chronic illnesses that we that we really have to take a step back. So getting back to this idea of skin and food sensitivity, the rosacea is a clue. That's another inflammatory disease. And when you have an antibody that grabs onto an antigen, it can filter out in your skin where all those little capillary beds are. And you have an immune system in your skin. And the immune system may very well mistake the antibody antigen food fragment as a antibody bacteria fragment and trigger an immune response. And that immune response will be greater or lesser depending upon how healthy the modulation of your immunity by your microbiome is, along with genetic factors, stress levels, and other things that tend to stimulate or mitigate the immune response. Uh, One of the things that absolutely stimulated the immune response of the entire population of people who got COVID was the fact that it took out one of those immune modulating responses. So a lot of autoimmune disease is showing up in the wake of COVID-19, much a much higher rate of new case identification. And that has to do with the loss of immune modulation. Low vitamin D is another factor in immune modulation, and as I said, your microbiome. So the antibody for a particular food is not a solid identification, but it is a suspicion. You take those foods out of your diet. You check the pollen uh, thing as well for foods that you don't ever eat and see if that could be the source. Obviously, you can can, uh, wear a mask when you're outside during pollen season for that and avoid getting it into your nose and then into your snot and then swallowing your snot and thus essentially eating the pollen. So the next thing to talk that you want to talk about is the gut flora. And testing for gut flora is uh, should be genetic. I did not know what test you're using. A genetic fingerprint is more useful than a culture. And the reason for that is that we can't culture most of the good, helpful probiotics. Most of them do not grow on a culture plate because oxygen is toxic to them. But we can see their DNA on a DNA test. And so that testing tells us if they're present in the appropriate quantities. And I won't get into the weeds here, except to say that the interpretation of this is still in its infancy, but most of the labs provide, particularly Genova, provide a pretty good analysis and this is this is a subspecialty of uh, primary care medicine called functional medicine, and it sounds to me like your doctor knows some functional medicine because you're on low-dose naltrexone, which I agree is correct. And with respect to burning out 
one of the things that you can do is make sure your vitamin D level is high. Uh, 70-ish, it would be where I would be shooting for on your on your vitamin D3. And the other thing that you can do that will uh, really be uh, beneficial for you is stress reduction. And I'm talking a serious program of mindful meditation. Uh, you know, we're not talking yoga for stretching and getting the endorphins. We're talking deep relaxed sensation that you got by deep breathing, that you got by meditation, that you got by other forms of uh, relaxation like biofeedback. You need to do that every day. Anyone with an autoimmune disease needs to be doing that maybe a half an hour, 15 minutes before work and 15 minutes after work. And then on days that you don't work, try to do it in the morning and give yourself half an hour and really learn how to induce that using whatever mechanism or method you're using. You want to be able to do that on demand within a few minutes, because then when something comes at you and knocks you a little bit out of kilter, you can bring yourself back down, get that stress response down, because your immune system interprets that as an intruder alert. Remember on Star Trek, intruder alert? Well, every stress spike of adrenaline is an intruder alert. The longer it stays up there and the more secondary and third spikes you get because it builds on itself. We all know that. Uh, You know, there's a famous poster. I woke up this morning with one nerve left and you're standing on it. Well, you want to never be in that situation. And we seem to have an an email. It just came up. So let's me open it up. Revive Lab offers vitamin K cream, phytonadione, How is it derived and what might it be useful for? All right. Well, let's start about vitamin K. Uh, Vitamin K, we've talked about extensively over the last few weeks, so please go back and take a look at those shows. But uh, vitamin K can be very beneficial to the skin. And one one of the things that we do with vitamin K cream is we treat those little broken blood vessels, and it will reduce them. And in some people, it's a really remarkable effect. I am completely unclear on the mechanism. But what the vitamin K cream, that the indication that I use for it is when the skin becomes fragile and people are starting to get those purple pools under their skin. You know, they'll catch the edge of the door on their way out. Maybe their skin will tear. Maybe it won't tear, but they'll develop a red blotch or it then turns purple. And those are essentially bleeding from a capillary that got torn and wasn't able to clot itself off. So when you saturate the skin with vitamin K, you drastically reduce how big those are and how long they, how much they bleed and how long they last. Uh, I, I like to use a combination of vitamin K and vitamin C. If you can, uh, vitamin C actually promotes collagen. And the reason you're tearing your capillaries is that your collagen network has gotten all frayed and damaged. And the poor little fibroblasts are just not equal to the task of rebuilding your skin the way they they used to when you were 20. So if you combine those two, and they, they do play well together, you can really get some benefit. Now, vitamin C is a polar molecule doesn't penetrate the skin particularly well. But if you get the concentration high enough, and I recommend getting the powdered vitamin C and making a paste, uh, you you can mix it in with uh, just water as far as that goes, or even a a liquid hand lotion and put that on your skin, maybe wrap some saran wrap over that for 15 or 20 minutes to help it penetrate. And you'll get improvement in that skin texture. It's a bit of a pain in the butt, but if you're blotching out majorly, it can be worthwhile doing. So those are the util- that's the utility for vitamin K. Interestingly enough, it does seem to help with clotting in the skin, but it doesn't do that in the blood. You can take all the oral vitamin K you want, but you will not make yourself hypercoagulable. It need- I think it probably doesn't absorb Uh, I think the gut's probably smarter than that and simply doesn't let it absorb. We were talking about the microbiome with our last emailer. Let's just keep talking. 
Diets high in fiber are associated with less antibiotic resistance in gut bacteria. So here's the recipe, folks. Eat a diverse diet with at least 8 to 10 grams of soluble fiber a day, and you'll have fewer antibiotic-resistant microbes in your guts. Microbes that have resistance, uh, such as tetracycline and aminoglycosides, are a real problem worldwide. But modifying the diet has the potential to be a new weapon in the fight against uh, antimicrobial resistance. And we're talking about an uh, an American-style diet with just lots of fiber. Animal protein doesn't help, but it doesn't... Uh, the problem with eating a diet high in animal protein is whether those animals were fed antibiotics. If they weren't, then you're probably going to be okay uh, and not destroy your uh, microbiome or make it more antibiotic resistant. So organic meat, folks, you know, grass-fed, all that good stuff, no antibiotics. Make sh- even You can buy non-organic stuff that says no antibiotics. You want to buy that, okay? It doesn't cost that much more. And uh, I've mentioned already that it was the anaerobics that we really want to have a lot of, and those are the ones that prevent the, uh, ad- the resistance genes from traveling around within your microbiome. The strongest predictor of high levels of antibiotic-resistant organisms is low, low levels of fiber. The highest association for high levels of antibiotic-resistant organisms is low levels of fiber. We're talking about soluble fiber, dissolves in water. Let's talk about where you find it. Grain, like barley and oats, legumes, beans, lentils, peas, seeds, especially chia seeds, nuts, Certain fruits and vegetables, especially carrots, berries, artichokes, broccoli, and winter squash. All delicious, all easy to add to your diet. Go ahead and do it. You're going to need 8 to 10 grams a day. You can get that easily from two servings of any of those foods. How hard is that? Not hard. So go ahead and give that a shot. Our first caller for the evening is Aline. And hello, Aline. Hi is there. it really health, not healthy to eat snacks, produce, or a full supper before going to sleep an hour later or right after eating? It is, well, it's unhealthy for a couple of reasons, all right? One of the reasons is it can impact the quality of your sleep. And you really want good sleep because you want to get deep. When you get deep, your brain gets cleaned out. If you can't get into mm-hmm. deep sleep, your brain can't take out the trash. And, of course, we all accumulate plenty of trash in our brains from day to day. And you also don't consolidate your memories. So I find that people who aren't getting deep sleep often complain of brain fog. And if we can alter that, we can fix the brain fog. But more importantly, their risk of Alzheimer's goes down if they have a chance to take out the trash. So deep sleep is important. And if you go to bed with a full stomach, that's impaired. The second one is... Uh, reflux. In other words, if you've got that food in your stomach while you're lying down, you're more likely to have it splash up into your esophagus. And that, over many, many years, increases your risk of esophageal cancer. So those are two good reasons to give yourself a two-hour limit and stay upright for two hours after you finish the meal. Set a little timer or something. Well, um... Yeah. I know. Lifestyle change is hard. I do sleep deep. No, you don't know that. You'd have to be on a you'd have to be on a monitor to know if you're really getting down to that deep mm-hmm. sleep. People can't tell well, the difference. My brain is okay during the day. Well, that's a good sign and I'm glad to hear it. Now, Aileen, do you have any follow-up questions cuz I want to keep going well, with yes, my um, Yeah. Uh, some time ago I heard about um Sponges being condominiums for bacteria and put your uh, dirty sponges, uh, cleaning sponges in the dishwasher. Well, number one, I don't have a dishwasher and uh, All right. this well, is according to a microbiologist. Right. So sponges uh, and toothbrushes, for that matter, are mm. definitely, anytime you give bacteria a mm-hmm. surface area, 
Mm. Any, so when you've got a lot of little small walls, which first d- defines a brush and defines a sponge, mm-hmm. when you have a little, lot of small walls, stuff's going to want to grow on it. It's just, it's, it's a perch. So uh, what you want to do is for sponges, if you can't microwave them, you can soak them in white vinegar, which is cheap. Oh, right. And so what we do in my household is we have those little yellow sponges that have the green stuff on the other side. Yeah, yeah. And we um, squeeze it out at the end of the night when we finish washing the dishes, and we drop it into a little loaf pan with vinegar, and it has a, it has a glass lid, so we put the lid on so we don't have to smell vinegar. And we let it soak overnight. Mm. And when the sponge is first gotten wet, so it's dried and sitting there, it's dry, when you first get it wet with water, just take a sniff. And if it doesn't smell good, you need a new sponge. And sponges are cheap. Mm-hmm. So you can, and ditto for, for toothbrushes. Uh, most people don't smell their toothbrushes, but you probably should. Mm-hmm. I have a little mm-hmm. ultrasonic, uh, ultraviolet, excuse me. I have a little ultraviolet cleaner for my toothbrush, but, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's money. And so I also have a water pick. And what I do with that is I I put the, I drop the tubes in vinegar because I was smelling kind of like moldy in my bathroom and I smelled my water pick thing that not mm. the handset but the um, the thing I was putting in my mouth and it's like ew that smells bad so now with uh, soaking it in vinegar no problem mm. so vinegar is great and that's mm-hmm. how you that's how you deal with that problem. And what is your ultraviolet what to you? Well, it came with the toothbrush. I have one of those ultrasonic toothbrushes. And the last time I bought a new one, it came with a little ultraviolet sterilizer. That, oh. Yeah, ultra, UVC, ultraviolet light. We learned, I learned a lot about that in 2020 because mm-hmm. it, among other things, kills COVID on surfaces. And so, mm. but it's also toxic to human cells and cause cancer. So <laughs> we were, you know, a lot of, People, including a friend of mine who had come up with this idea of building a, a sort of air recirculating thing, it would suck the air in and run it through a series of pipes with ultraviolet light and then spit it out at the end. And he was, uh, you know, thinking about working this up into an invention. And of course, a few other people were as well. But I do believe that they are now doing that. In or some of toothbrushes only, or just uh, all no, no, all toothbrushes. toothbrushes. Oh, yeah, you yeah, you yeah. could buy th- something to put a regular toothbrush in. Yeah. Uh, all right. We good. Thank you. All right. Bye, bye, Eileen. And let's talk about weight loss and the microbiome. I think everybody, and I do mean everybody, uh, is interested in changing their weight. The, the two thin people want to be bigger, and the two big people want to be smaller, and we all want to move that what fat we've got around. I remember fantasizing when I was a god 13 years old if I could only take the stuff in my butt and put it in my breasts, I'd, you know, I'd fix my proportions. Well, they do that nowadays, you know, but I'm not talking about fat transplants. So, there are some interesting nutrients that are known to suppress appetite and promote movement. Now, it's been known for a long time that a protein-rich diet can help people lose weight. And part of that is because, for some reason, protein acts as an appetite suppressant. And I absolutely swear by that. Uh, that's kind of how I've managed my diet. But if you're going to eat a high-protein diet, you've got to drink a lot of fluid because you don't want to strain your kidneys. Our bodies, proteins are made out of amino acids. And there's 21 amino acids that our bodies need to make our proteins. There are nine that we cannot make on our own. Those are called the essential amino acids. But uh, those have got to come in and diet. But the other the other 12, we can, they're called non-essential because we can make them by altering other molecules. You can derive them from glucose or from other molecules, and I'll give you the list in, at the end. But Non-essential amino acids actually suppress appetite. And a group of researchers in Zurich have shown for the first time in a living organism that non-essential amino acids influence the brain in a way that curbs appetite and promotes exercise. So first, they fed mice either a mixture of various non-essential amino acids or a sugar solution with the same amount of calories. Both groups of mice were then allowed to drink a milkshake which they would normally love. So the control group drank copious amounts of the milkshake, just pigged out on it. 
but the mice that had been fed the non-essential amino acids avoided their milkshake. Instead, they were like walking around looking for some other food. They didn't. They did not like the milkshake. So, because they were dealing with lab mice, they were able to record the underlying mechanism. There are specialized neurons in the brain called orexin neurons. These neurons are also very important for sleep. Uh, protein, the, the non-essential amino acids that the mics take in through food are broken down. You know, the proteins are broken down. The non-essential amino acids get into the bloodstream and the orexin neurons have receptors that recognize non-essential amino acids. And when they're, when those non-essential amino acids get on to the receptor, they initiate a neural cycle that produces a loss of appetite and an increase in movement. Now, the loss of appetite makes sense. You know, you, you have enough, but the increase in movement is fascinating. So in the, in the, uh, paper, uh, the lead author, who is named Polyus Viscitis, uh, suggested that in evolution, it uh, this probably evolved very, very early in mammals, and it was an advantage advantageous for individuals to spend the least energy possible searching for food, uh, because at a, at a food source that was primarily non-essential amino acids, because they could make those. Instead, if they were eating non-essential amino acids prompted the urge to move, then they would go around and go find some honey or go find some fruit or something sweeter, which would contain all of the initial nutrients that they were more essential that they couldn't make on their own. And they believe this is a very, very old mechanism. So what are these non-essential amino acids and are they available as supplements? Well, you bet they are. Um, Alanine, arginine asparagine, aspartate, cysteine, glutamate, glutamine, glycine, proline, and serine. And uh, the only exception is tyrosine, which is synthesized from phenylalanine. And we have, uh, and the rest of the nine amino acids are essential. So increasing your intake of uh, non-essential amino acids, they still have calories, but they might actually help you push away from the dinner table a little faster and get up and move. Certainly worth giving a, giving it a shot, don't you think? And back to the microbiome, food cravings, what's living in your gut may be responsible. So uh, a researcher at the New University of Pittsburgh showed for the first time that in, you know, it's been theoretical and he set up a controlled experiment. He basically gave 30 mice that lacked any gut microbes, because we have these gut sterile uh, lab mice. He gave them a cocktail of microorganisms from three different species of wild rodents that had three very different natural diets and basically looked at what food they selected. And the the microbes essentially directed these lab mice to go eat the same diet that the wild rodents were naturally eating. The brain and the gut are in constant conversation, and there are certain kinds of molecules that act as go-betweens. The microbes in the gut can also produce some of the same molecules, and they can hijack that line of communication. Think about uh, Thanksgiving dinner and how sleepy you get afterwards. That's the tryptophan. Turkey is very high in tryptophan, an essential amino acid that's very that's very high levels in turkey, but it's also produced by gut microbes, and it's transformed in, in the brain to serotonin, also, I might add, in the gut to serotonin, and the serotonin does travel up the vagus nerve as well as the tryptophan, gets to the brain and changes your behavior to which you're making it yourself go to sleep. If we choose a different diet, we can alter our micro our microbiome within about uh, a week. And during that week, and I've seen this all the times with people who have sugar cravings, if they can just hold firm, and I guess I'm going to tell them eat a bunch of uh, non-essential amino acids, uh, and if they can do that, then they can shift their microbiome and those cravings go away because the 
the bacteria that were actually telling you to go eat sugar have reduced. They don't die off entirely, and you can get them back if you change your diet back. But in terms of the cravings, it's an it's a phenomenon. It's a thing, and it really does happen. So I simply want to encourage people to make it through that first week. It's amazing what kind of results you can get, and I think that's also why the the uh, high-protein, the paleo diets are so good for you is because they do encourage you to eat a wide variety of things with fiber, and you end up with the good microbes, and you end up with a just a more resilient system, and you don't gain weight as rapidly if you do have, uh, you know, you go to a party and eat cake. You don't pack it back on the way you do if you're on a really reduced calorie diet and you haven't shifted your microbiome. So I promised you more on this topic. So here's an article uh, describing how microbiomes and bile tame inflammation. Now, bile acids come from the liver and are stored in the gallbladder, and they play a critical role in helping absorb the food we ingest. They break down and emulsify fat, and fat's a very valuable calorie-dense food. Uh, But it also turns out that these substances, the bile, are important players in gut immunity and inflammation because they regulate the activity of immune cells that are linked to ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. So how how do bile acids get the immune cells to, how how do they do their immune cell regulations? Well, it depends on bacteria. And so this, these uh, were published in March of this year, one in Nature and one in Cell Host and Microbiome, and they identify three bile acid metabolites and the bacterial genes that produce the molecules that are effective in mo- modulating inflammation in the immune system. They noted that in people who have inflammatory bowel disease, they have many lower levels of these bacteria and therefore that DNA and therefore those breakdown products of bile. And this is super important because we already know that the microbiome transplants can affect a cure in these diseases. So what the raw material is for the modulation is related to bile. And it makes me wonder if anyone's ever looked at gallbladder uh, disease uh, particularly gallbladder removal and uh, the tendency to develop autoimmune disease or inflammatory bowel diseases. So let's uh, wrap this one up in just saying that this is another complex web and another reason to become a gut gardener. Uh, we're going to go to our next caller. Uh, that is Curtis. Hello, Curtis. You're on the air. Hi, Dr. Don. Uh, good to hear you again. I have a question that is kind of concurrent with your theme um, of the biome. Uh, about two weeks ago, this last Sunday, I was diagnosed with uh, salmonella, and I was really violently sick, probably the worst gastro episode I've ever had. And uh, so my doctor put me on Cipro, and I know, I remember from years back, I guess there was an anthrax epidemic or, you know, they were concerned about anthrax attacks. And so there was a run on Cipro. And what I found out was that Cipro is like one of the ones they try to hold back because it's the last defense for, uh, I guess, uh, antibiotic resistant uh, bacteria. And so... I'm thinking what it did to my stomach, or I've got two more days of it, and I am would like to hear what the aftercare I should do for myself besides just eating yogurt. I mean, I eat fiber, I know I take the supplemental fiber and stuff, but I uh, would like to hear something about that. I was a little concerned that they were giving me Cipro because it had side effects that were kind of scary. Yeah, Cipro does have some scary side effects. Uh, let's 
let's address those for just a moment. Uh, I'm I'm particularly concerned about tendon rupture after taking yes. any of the drugs in this category. And if you've got bacterial pneumonia and you you know you need to take Levaquin because you've got community acquired bacterial pneumonia and you're verging you know close to getting septic, yeah, it's a good trade. But whenever anyone has to take a course of Cipro, my advice to them is you have to consider that your tendons are more likely to rupture. So certain beha- certain types of rapid acceleration and deceleration behaviors uh, mm-hmm. should be avoided. Uh, jumping in particular, jumping down from things. I mean, one of my uh, colleagues actually had been on Cipro about six months before, and then he went off to Europe and he jumped off of, he was at Pompeii, I think, and he jumped over a th- over something to get a good picture and then he or got up on it and then jumped down popped his tendon mm-hmm. halfway through his mm. Italian vacation and after the course of Cipro yes and the the effect is fairly prolonged and so okay. but the first couple of months are the worst so mm-hmm. you need to protect your tendons this this is the sort of i mean if you're a rock climber don't if you're uh, playing a lot of of uh, soccer, like competitive soccer, you know, very mm-hmm. competitive uh, basketball, you know, where you're doing the cuts and the runs and you're spinning and kind of stopping and twisting at the same time. This is probably a bad idea. Mm-hmm. So, you know, where you're using your joints in a more controlled fashion and you're not likely to get pushed sideways skiing, I would say, maybe not uh, this winter. And mm-hmm. it kind of depends on your skill level, but you don't. You know, if you're going to do like a nice slow ski and you're in control, you're probably okay, unless, of course, you're not. But the the bottom line is you got to watch out for your tendons. They will eventually recover, but tendons take, you know, a year or two after a tear to heal completely. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of giving people, a, a depends on their behavior and their activities, whether it's a big deal or not. Uh, right. Cipro also, one of the reasons we don't like to give it out, honestly, is because it's easy to become resistant to and we and it does work for a lot of very nasty bacteria so far at least if you don't get them in the hospital anyway so so we like not to use it for anything that we can get rid of you know we can get rid of let's say augmentin or amoxicillin clavulinate which is the the generic name for that one and sometimes we have to but the rehab now i'm going to turn to th- mm-hmm. that aspect of it so probiotics, prebiotics, and uh, lots, a wide, wide variety of root vegetables. And this is one that I learned a few years ago and added to my armamentarium. So roasted root vegetables are delicious, even if you, you know, don't like... Oh, yeah, I love, love right. carrots, beets, root, everything. Right, so we're going to ask you to branch off into rutabagas, celeriac, <laughs> um, uh, turnips... Uh, mm-hmm. daikon, and every mm-hmm. weekend you're going to buy one of each at the supermarket, mm-hmm. and you're going to roast them all together in a pan and mm-hmm. put them in a container and throw them into salads, heat them up as a vegetable side dish, and try to eat like you know, a half a cup to a quarter cup of your root mixture a, a day. Mm-hmm. All right, and that will give you plenty of substrate. Uh, artichokes are also a really good... Artichokes, asparagus... Uh, look up FODMAPs, right? Uh, mm-hmm. F- FODMAP diet. You can look up FODMAP diet Stanford. They have a nice list of foods to avoid. If you want to avoid FODMAPs, you're going to twist, turn that list on its head, and you're going to eat those mm-hmm. because those mm-hmm. are bacteria chow. Those, okay. those are what those bacteria that we're trying to get to grow like. And so you, the use of probiotics is valuable during and for about four weeks after. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is in addition to eating fermented foods. And that is, that's because they act as a placeholder. So they, Mm -hmm. they act as, it's like putting down ground cover. So the weeds don't take root. So you've just Mm -hmm. cleared things. You've just hit, hit the field with roundup now. So everything's Mm -hmm. dead. So the things that are going to come back soonest are the rapid-growing sugar lovers. So you could shift your Mm -hmm. diet away from sugar to discourage them, and you could Mm -hmm. use 
other probiotic products, there's many of them out there, maybe 50, that's five zero billion mixed organisms, couple lactobacillus, mm-hmm. couple bifidobacterium, maybe some mm-hmm. espoulardi. You can find this. Uh, Jaro makes a good one called Ultradophilus. And you just take that as ground cover. You're not expecting it to take root. You're just basically trying to prevent the bad guys from taking root. Right. So it's, you know, weed prevention while you're waiting for your own microbiome to find all that lovely food you're feeling and feeding it and self-select into the good guys. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes, that's, a, that's a great idea. I hadn't thought of it, but it's like growing your own garden. Mm-hmm. Press the weeds first, right? <laughs> yeah, and also the the root vegetables. One part of even when you cook them, they still contain spores of these the, these these anaerobic organisms. Are they, the only thing that kills them is oxygen? But they originally were this. They are this this soil flora. Yeah. So, are, I mean, I love all vegetables. Right. I've never met a vegetable I didn't like. Well, root vegetables, almost everybody likes because they're less bitter especially when you, right. when you roast them. So I can even get my, like, kid that hates vegetables to eat a sweet potato, you know, that... Sure. And that's a good root vegetable. And if you can figure... And you figure you're getting some of the soil bacteria inside that vegetable, as well as mm-hmm. on its surface. So uh, go for it. Go forth and eat your veggies. Right. I, I'm a big fan of pickled beets and sauerkraut and kimchi. So uh, is that ground cover or is that uh, planting the garden? That's more planting the garden. There's a lot okay. of, there's still a lot of available carbohydrate in there. So I would, I would consider that uh, planting, well, you're planting the garden, but you're also including, uh, you're also including some um, ground cover there. So it's a bit of both okay. now that I think about Good. it. Perfect. It can be both. All right. Well, thank you very much for the call. I appreciate it. Great and program. Thanks. I love your program. Well, thanks for listening. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Don is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.